Um, it's a great chapter, Nehemiah 3, which is what we're going to consider this morning. Um, the third chapter of Nehemiah uh, is a detailed account, as you can tell just from our brief reading, of the way the gates and the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, focusing on the names of those who were involved in the construction project. Can anything be more uninteresting than a list of names, particularly names most of us can hardly pronounce? I hope to show you this morning that not only is this chapter one of the most important in the entire book of Nehemiah, but it's actually even interesting. So just to catch you up on where we are so far in the book of Nehemiah in terms of the narrative the last couple of weeks. Nehemiah in chapter 1 receives word from his brother Hanani that uh, the walls in Jerusalem are in disrepair and the people are in great distress. Nehemiah, being a Jew by birth but living as a cupbearer to the king of Persia in the Persian Empire, which rules over Israel in those days, having captured Babylon, which originally deported them uh, from, from Jerusalem, receives this word, immediately turns to God in prayer, asking for intervention, for God to keep his promises, for God that if the people will return to him, that he would return to them and that he would establish them fully in the land according to his covenant. Nehemiah not only prays, but he has a plan and recognizes God's providence in placing him as a cupbearer to the king, a a member of his administrative council, one who would be high up in, in, in the Persian empire and also would have a lot of influence with the king. But he doesn't trust in all that, as we saw last week. He is terrified in many ways and uh, unsure how the king will receive this news. But nevertheless, when given the opportunity and God opens the door, he states exactly what he wants from the king, which is to be able to go back and repair these walls and to restore the people of Israel in their land. The king grants that request. He gives them a safe conduct passage and a government grant to get the project done. And then we saw last week he began to encounter opposition even as he was making his way there and beginning the inspection. But he ended the chapter with a resolute commitment in God that God would certainly uh, equip them and enable them to do what Nehemiah, what God had put in Nehemiah's heart to do, to rebuild the walls. And so he He encourages the people along those lines, and the people respond, let us rise up and build. And so that's what chapter 3 is. Chapter 3 is the people of God rising up and building. So without going through each verse, I want to point out four similarities between how the people of God built the Jerusalem of their day and how we build the Jerusalem of our day. In other words, how we build the church, how we build the people of God up. Now, these things that I'm going to share with us this morning are not promises. I'm not taking church growth from Nehemiah chapter 3 as some sort of promises embedded in there. I'm taking them as principles, proverbs, precepts, things like that, things that are generally true, where you see healthy church renewal. So this morning, uh, what we're going to talk about is four necessary components of church renewal. That's what Nehemiah is engaging in in Nehemiah chapter 3. They're rebuilding the people of God by rebuilding the wall first. Remember, they're addressing the physical structure, but it's with the ultimate goal of addressing the spiritual condition. But before we get into those four specific components, let's remember what's underneath all of this, and that is the good hand of God. 
The good hand of God is pervading these chapters. It is God behind the scenes working out his good plan and purpose for his people. So in the midst of all these principles and, and promises, what ultimately renews a church, what ultimately will renew our church in an ongoing way is God's good hand upon us. We can have all the right tips and tricks and things like that, but if the good hand of God is not upon us, we labor in vain. So the good hand of God is what produced the burden in Nehemiah's heart to begin with. It's what produced the unrelenting prayer that grew out of that burden. It's what produced the transparent realism that he had with the king. It's what produced the faith-filled hope when the people were already questioning whether they could get the job done. The evidence that the good hand of God, brothers and sisters, is upon us is the same manifestation of the good hand of God on the hand of Nehemiah. We too will have a broken-hearted burden for his kingdom. We too will have unrelenting prayer concerning his kingdom. We too will be willing to be used by God in whatever he wants us to do in his kingdom. And then we are positioned by his providence to step into that work when he opens the door. That is what kingdom life and kingdom work is. So to work well in the service of God, in renewing and growing and building his church. To work well in that service, we have to have the good hand of God upon us, producing in us a willingness. Progress is made so quickly here for two reasons, and we have to keep this in mind. God will not accomplish his purpose without us, but we cannot accomplish God's purpose without him. That's the tension that we see in the book of Nehemiah. They know they need God, which is why Nehemiah begins with prayer. But they know that God doesn't intend to do the work without them, so they become the answer to their own prayers. As we read in chapter 4, verse 6, the people had a mind to work. That's the way God answered prayer. He gave them a heart to labor in construction for 52 days. That's the way God shows up. Do we always think God has to show up in a pillar of cloud and fire? Or can he show up in a work ethic? Well, he showed up here in a work ethic. Four necessary components of church renewal. Number one, the church is built when everyone works personally. The church is built when everyone works personally. I don't know if you noticed it, even from Adam's brief reading and the survey he provided, but it's amazing if you just look at this chapter to see the number of people who are involved in building this wall, isn't it? Everyone, it seems, is involved. From every class or group within society, you have priests in verse 1 and 17 and 22 and 28 getting their hands dirty. They're temple workers, but they're working on the wall. You got men of Jericho. Jericho was a good ways away, but you also have residents of other cities that are mentioned, some that are quite far from Jerusalem. Tekoa and Gibeon and Mizpah and Zenoah and Beth Hakarim and Beth Zur and Keilah. All these places are not close by. I mean, they are relatively in the region, but it still takes a haul to get there, especially when you lack mass transit like buses and cars and planes. You have union members. You have guild members. You have goldsmiths. You have perfume makers. You've got city officials mentioned in verse 9, 12, 14 to 19. Rulers coming to work. 
You've got women mentioned, the daughters of so-and-so coming alongside and helping in the rebuilding of the wall. You've got bachelors in verse 23. Check that out. Verse 23. These guys didn't have anything else better to do, I guess. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. And them, Azariah, the son of Maasai, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. So that could be a reference to just the one person representing their family, and he's the one out working. But that doesn't seem to fit with the chapter because it seems to be everybody who's in the house is involved in the rebuilding, and these guys are just mentioned uh, as solo guys who are working on the wall. So you got priests, you got travelers, you got union men, guild members, city officials, women, bachelors, temple servants in verse 26 and 31, city guards in verse 29, merchants in verse 32, other rulers mentioned. Just everybody is involved. What does this teach us, brothers and sisters? Kingdom work is not for the elite few. It's for the mobilized masses. Everybody is in the game. This is the Old Testament version of Ephesians 4, every member ministry. We believe that at our church. We believe that every Christian ministers. That doesn't mean that every Christian is a capital M minister, pastor, but it does mean that pastors have ministries, Christians have ministries. We all have ministries. Every member of HBC has a part of the wall that you're supposed to be working on. What's your part of the wall? What are you working on? I'm so grateful to be a pastor of a church where we have so many people on the wall. I would not last in ministry if we did not have people on the wall. I'd give up. No, no pastor who is a true pastor wants to do everything in a church. That's not what a pastor is called to do. That's not what Jesus wants of the church. Jesus wants the pastors, Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what we do. And I'm so thankful to be in a church and be privileged to pastor you all who are so, uh, so on the wall all the time. Just this morning, we've got people on the worship wall on the nursery wall, on the security and setup wall, on the Sunday school wall, on the AV wall. Some of you are on, on wall right now, like Jeff at those doors and Justin at those doors and Josh back there on the sound, the AV running up to me. They don't get to stop. The nursery's not stopping right now. They're on the wall. They're working while we worship as an expression of their worship to God, and we, we are grateful to them for it. Let's not forget... Also, not just what's going on now, but all the on-the-wall kinds of activities that take place before and after the service, where we greet the newer people or catch up with each other. As we discover a new believer, we offer to meet up with them for Bible study or try to help them grow deeper in the faith, read a book together, offer to read the Bible together. Or we attend a small group and we start with small talk, but then we start to get into the real needs of our lives and our relationships gives us opportunities to help. We learn things we didn't learn before. We learned about ways we can help even this week and next week before Dwayne heads back to Serbia. We can equip with money and time and effort to put baked goods together so that we can send, it over, send up our money overseas, raise some money to buy some students some laptops. May God ever preserve us, brothers and sisters, from becoming a football church. What I mean by a football church, say, wait, we kind of are a football church. We got kids playing football before and after services. Not talking about that. That's great. As long as we don't play in here and hit 
people. But I, what I mean is where a football church is where you've got a, a multitude of spectators who could all use a little exercise looking down at a bunch of exhausted few that need a rest. That's a football church. And there's several churches that are like that. And they're miserable places to be a member and they're miserable places to be a minister. But where you have a family that is energetically throwing themselves in to the mission of God for the purposes of God, joy abounds. Joy abounds. And that is our testimony as your pastors. Can we grow? Of course. Have we been blessed? Yes. Are we called to steward that? Absolutely. Should we excel still more? You better believe it. Maybe you still are in the stands, though, and wondering where you can serve. Notice how Nehemiah doesn't force people into positions. He doesn't go and say, hey, you need to do that. He doesn't do that. Oftentimes, he seems to have arranged the work in part for the convenience and motivation of the workers. And this is one of the ways, one of the myriad of ways Nehemiah is a good leader. He recognizes people are motivated by what they care about. So, so often people are positioned, hey, why don't you take the wall right in front of your house? You hate looking at that every day, don't you? It's not a far way to travel. Go out your front door, get on the wall. So he, he makes it easy for, easier for them to join in. And that's what we want to do as pastors. We want to make it easy to get in. We want to make it easy to jump on. We don't want you to have to feel like you got to do 1,500 things, go through 15,000 protocols to figure out if I can do something for ministry. You don't have to call us to do ministry. Go do it. Go do it. I love hearing about ministry in our church that I know nothing about. Nobody asked me permission for it. They just did it. Praise God. Imagine Nehemiah sitting up there. Why are you asking me about this? Just do it. You know, like, you don't need my permission. You have God's permission. You have the authority of Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit in your life. Do ministry. Love people. Invest in them spiritually. You don't got to get permission for that. You just do it. So, as we see here, some of them were assigned. There was some assignment. That was probably people coming like, hey, we'll do anything where you want us to work. And then Nehemiah would tell them. But most of the time, he tried to choose parts of the wall that were near their homes. Priests built near the temple, we see in verse 1, verse 28. Temple servants were building in the temple mount, which is where they would have worked. So Nehemiah just looked at, hey, where are you guys normally at? And then he just kind of positioned and organized them where they would most neatly and uh, arrange. But they were all doing it. Everybody was involved. So if we're struggling with where to figure out what part of the wall we should be on. I love this quote by Tim Keller. I feel like I refer to it every couple of years. Um, it's in an article he wrote on discerning spiritual gifts. I think I've got it uh, on the screen. If not, let me, re let me read it to you. This is Tim Keller's counsel on how to discover what part of the wall you should be on. We can discern God's calling when three factors come together for us. Affinity, what human needs do I gravitate toward? What, what interests me? What are my passions? Ability, what am I good at? What do people say I am elected? Or what, what do people say I'm good in? And availability, what doors for service are open? What needs to be done? Affinity, what you like. Ability, what you're good at. Availability, what's available. And then Keller says, when all three factors come together, you can see God has equipped and called you to do something or to move in a certain direction. I propose that in the church, you start with the third aspect, availability. In other words, find the jobs in the church that need to be done and then do them. Just serve. Don't ask too much about whether it fulfills you. 
Why? First, the only way you will ever really come to know the kind of ministry that you're best at is if you do a lot of different things, then you'll know what God blesses. Don't look first at your proven abilities, at your day job or your natural talents to determine what you do in the church because, as mentioned earlier, God may not use that. Likewise, you don't first look at your affinities, the things that you like. If you gravitate too quickly to those areas, you may miss latent gifts that you aren't even aware you have. Just serve, plug the gaps in the church, and help out. Go through the door of opportunity in the church, doing what needs to be done, and then as time goes on, you can check your affinities and abilities and begin to specialize. That's been my testimony. I think that's been the testimony of a number of you who've been in our congregation for any period of time. You just kind of dove in, started serving, and then you kind of figure out what blesses the body the most. But just plug holes, fill gaps. And that's one of the ways that we encourage and build up the body. You might feel like you're a dispensable part of the body. You know, like 1 Corinthians 12 says, Paul's trying to encourage the body, and he says, you know, to, the, to the, those who think they're dispensable, remember, no part of the body is dispensable. Everybody's needed. If you feel like you're dispensable around here, read chapter 3. No name is given a trophy. Everyone's name is recorded, no matter what part of the wall they were assigned no matter what their station in society was, no matter what their station on the religious org chart was, they were recorded. They were noticed, and under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, they're recorded in the Bible. So whether they were leading or whether they were repairing, their name's there. Whether they're hauling bricks or teach the Bible as a living, God notices your work for him. These are the names of real, historical individuals recorded for us in Holy Scripture. Each one was needed and worthy to be written down for generations to read. So rather than carefully record the names and details about the builders on the wall, Nehemiah could have just said, there were all kinds of people involved. Many people from all walks of life rose up and built the wall. He didn't. He took 32 verses to describe names of people who did it. Almost as a thank you note to all those individuals who did their part. Why didn't he do it that way? Why didn't he just say, and so we built the wall together and leave out chapter 3 and go right into chapter 4? Because God notices the work his people do for him. He doesn't forget it. How many names and details are you aware of about the builders of the Tower of Babel? None. They get a few sentences because they built their own kingdom and they get written out of God's. But So if you want to devote your life to building your own kingdom, you'll be forgotten by God and the world. If you devote yourself to building God's kingdom and making his name great, and dissolving yourself into his glory, and dying and being forgotten and being cool with that, I don't, I don't care if anybody remembers me five years after I'm dead. I don't care if anybody remembers me five minutes after I'm dead. I'm not going to care. I just want to leave a good testimony for Christ, die and be forgotten, and live in his glory. He's the point. I ain't the point. I'm an interim pastor here. Do you know that? I want heritage to go on for 400 years if Jesus tarries. I ain't going to be the last pastor of this church. None of your pastors are. You aren't the last members. Let's have a long-term view. We're playing a little part on the wall and a little part of the story. 
God is doing something bigger and broader than any of us can possibly fathom. But the Babel builders are not recorded. But every single person that built on the wall in Nehemiah's day is recorded. When you try to build your own kingdom, God forgets your name. When you try to build his kingdom, he never forgets your name. Now, I want, you, I want, to, take, I want to give us some realism. All right, before we move on to the second point, by the way, we'll, we'll get through these other points much faster. But look at verse 5. Here's the realism. This is the uh, already not yet of the passage. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. <laughs> not everybody's involved. There's a lot of people involved, but some people won't do it. That's real life. We will never have a church with 100% commitment. It's not real. It's not real in Nehemiah's day. It's not real in our day. There will always be some who consider the task beneath them. How terrible to be accused in the scriptures of not being willing to stoop to serve your Lord. When you had a Lord who stooped to serve you who went farther down than you will ever have to go, if you had to change nasty diapers as your ministry for the rest of your life, you did nothing that Jesus did not do infinitely more. He changes our dirty diapers every day, doesn't he? So how do we get that heart to stoop, to not have that pride that keeps us aloof? I don't want to get involved. It's too taxing. It's too much of my time. It's me, 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 me. How do we get out of the me box? We look at Jesus stooping to serve us. We look at him washing our feet. And he's washing our feet and and he looks up at us and he says, you need to do this for each other. I'm doing this as an example for you. And that's what we do. When he stoops down, we stoop down. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. The love of Christ constrains us, for we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. That's the logic of the gospel. Christ stooped for me, bearing my sin, carrying my cross, dying my death, receiving my judgment, absorbing my wrath. Raised for my justification, raised for my eternal life. He bought it all. It's a free gift to me. There is nothing I will not do for him. That's the logic of the gospel. That's what grace does. Our God stoops for us. We stoop for our Lord, and we're all in for him. Nobody's on the sidelines. Everybody jumps in the game. That's the first point. Quickly, the other points. Number two, the church is built when everyone works cooperatively. When everyone works cooperatively. Notice the unity that is present in this effort. Everyone knows their job and everyone does it. They're not, they don't seem to be stepping on each other's toes, getting on each other's nerves. But rather they, they seem to be staying in their lane and working diligently at what God has called them to do. So as the narrator moves, as the, as the chapter unfolds, you, you won't notice this. I didn't notice this until, um, uh, until I was preparing this week. But... Uh, Nehemiah records this counterclockwise. So basically, he, he, he starts with the sheep gate, and then he works. Well, your way would be this way. So he's working uh, counter, counterclockwise, going this way, and then he makes his way finally back up to the sheep gate. So he's working down and around as he records all these names of the people. Um, 
And then we read in nearly every verse from verses 2 to verse 15, and next to him was, and next to him was, and next to him was, and next to him was. They weren't on top of each other. They were beside each other, working together in tandem, in unison, for one goal. See, one of Satan's great skills in the church is to get the church sidetracked, to get it on issues, masks, Talk about that a lot. Care about that a lot. Vaccines. Talk about that a lot. Care about that a lot. Make that the test of fellowship. And if you don't think it is, you need to get on some pastor's calls I'm having. Splitting churches. Splitting churches over this kind of stuff. Grow up, family of God. We can disagree about this stuff. But is there anything in your statement of faith about a mask or a vaccine? No. So, but again, Satan pulls at us and gets these, these things become huge and important to us because we're worldly and we're getting sold and we're getting discipled by the news and all that stuff and not by the Bible. Spending way more time listening to them than listening to him. Listen to him. Him, him, him. Dominant voice in my life. Please, for the sake of your eternal soul, listen to him. And then you notice when they all got the same mission in, in, in sight, they're all side by side. See, if everybody's rowing the boat, they're not rocking the boat, right? If everybody's rowing the boat, they're not rocking the boat. And I I think one of the reasons that the Lord has sustained a measure of unity in our congregation for so many years is because we've got so many people busy with the work of God. When people aren't busy with the work of God, they're busy biting and devouring each other because we're made to be on mission. And if we won't fight Satan and the enemies, we'll fight our brothers and sisters. And it's a false mission, and it's a demonic mission. And it's a, it's, a, a judge, it's, a, it's a mission that will bring the discipline of God upon a people. But notice, Nehemiah is in this with him. He's like, let's keep the vision in front of us. Let's remember we got a wall to build here. Let's get our posts. And then notice verse 19 of chapter 2. Come, let us do it. We will build. He doesn't say, get after it. I'm the leader around here. I'm the foreman. Get after it. No, he joins in the work. Nehemiah is putting himself among the people as a fellow laborer. He's not above them as much as he is alongside them. This is just another evidence of Nehemiah's humble character. In his relationship with God, he models dependence. In his relationship to his earthly superior, he models loyalty and respect. And it shouldn't surprise us that when it comes to relating to those under his charge, he models camaraderie and teamwork. He's just a humble man. He doesn't go around bossing people around. People that boss people around are proud. They're eaten up with themselves. A servant is not above his master. And neither is a master above his servant in the kingdom of God. Critical to this is the way Nehemiah delegates authority. Nehemiah seems to have made the assignments on the wall, and from then on he seems to have allowed each group of workers to process it as he saw fit. He wasn't a micromanager. He was a good delegator. Now, there is a difference, as we know, between delegating and dumping, I hope. He doesn't just dump the work on him and say, hey, I'll, I'll be back in 55 days. I hope this is done. No, in Exodus 18, remember, Moses was confronted by his father-in-law because of his unhealthy approach to leadership. Moses was feeling the burden and the weight of growing responsibilities. Not only was Moses overwhelmed, but the people he served were going home unsatisfied. 
And so Jethro told Moses, build a system with godly leaders and distribute the care for all the people through other leaders. And he asked Moses to stop doing all the work, that is all the ministry, and to prepare others to do ministry. Again, an Old Testament illustration of Ephesians 4, every member ministry. Jethro invites Moses to delegate responsibility and authority to others who had proven themselves trustworthy. He didn't encourage Moses to just dump it all um, on anybody he could find, but rather, to rem- and not to remove his heart from the people or to wash his hands of the burden, but there's a big difference between delegating and dumping. Here's a couple of differences. With delegating, the leader is still available. Nehemiah is still on the job. He didn't abandon them, Okay. With dumping, a leader really doesn't want to be bothered with the issue again and subtly and overtly sends that signal. Jethro encouraged Moses to have the leaders bring the difficult cases to him. In other words, Moses was still involved and available to the people to whom he delegated responsibility. Also with delegating, a leader's heart is still engaged. With dumping, a leader will remove their heart as the responsibility is given to another person. But in some cases, what the leader hands off to others aren't merely things the leader doesn't like to do, but actually likes to do. They don't delegate their hearts. They care deeply about what is being delegated. It's because they care so much that they delegate, not because they care so little, because they know there are other people way more gifted than me to do this. And I couldn't bear it all anyway. It would just be the law of diminishing returns after a while. Jethro told Moses in Exodus 18.22 that if he delegated well, they will bear the burden with you. They will bear the burden with you. With you. Jethro did not imagine that Moses would stop caring. And then finally, with delegating, a leader carefully selects who receives the responsibility. With dumping, any warm body will do. But with delegating, leaders carefully choose those people who will serve alongside them. Jethro told Moses to select able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating bribes. Choose men of character. There is a massive difference between delegating and dumping. Nehemiah delegates well. He creates a culture of cooperation. Thirdly, the church is built when everyone works wisely. The church is built when everyone works wisely. Notice we see Nehemiah's planning in chapter 2, right, as he comes to the king with a plan. After receiving word, the king is interested in what he has to say and willing to hear his burden. He says, okay, I need safe passage, I need a government grant, we need to go rebuild the walls, and I'll come back to you. And then we see as he surveys the damage done, remember in chapter 2 last week as he starts to make his way by night, walk around the city and see things, he's beginning to gather his plan together. We see how systematically he inspects and plans for the rebuilding. And I want you to see the structured progression of workers that are carefully described section by section in chapter 3, as well as the logic of the placement of many of them. Look at chapter 3 again. It's, like I already mentioned, it's organized geographically, counterclockwise, from the, from the sheep gate back around to the sheep gate again. So it works its way around the edge of Jerusalem, showing how the wall was built from gate to gate. The gates become the kind of linchpins for the shifts in the chapter. And between each gate, people build the wall. Nehemiah's plan apparently divided several miles of wall into what we can see as 41 sections. That's what I counted, at least. Now, here's the path. He begins with the sheep gate located along the northern wall in verses 1 and 2. The work moves to the west, including the fish gate in verses 3 to 5, and the old gate in verses 6 to 12. 
and then moves south to the valley gate and the dung gate in verses 13 and 14. And then it moves east from the fountain gate in verses 15 to 27 before the horse gate, inspection gate, and arriving back at the sheep gate in verses 28 to 32. That's the pattern of the chapter. James Boyce, great pastor who's been with the Lord a number of years now, wrote, Nehemiah divided the walls into manageable sections. If the rebuilding of the wall had been tackled as a whole task in itself, and if one person or even a group of people had been assigned to it, the work would have seemed impossible, and rightly so. Who could build an entire mile and a half or two and one half mile wall? Nobody. But when the project was divided into separate segments, then that two and a half mile project became manageable. I think our deacon's slogan is many hands make light work, right? I hear that from our deacons probably more often than any singular phrase, but that's absolutely true. Many hands make light work. The point is that there's an organization to this effort. They're not doubling back or scrambling around. They're working efficiently and wisely. Nehemiah didn't underestimate the task, let the work go until the end, spend time on later uh, let more interesting things in, instead of building the most foundational things first. No, he tackled the most basic problems first, and then he built out from there. It's a demonstration of master administration and, and organization. And all the humble participation in the world, brothers and sisters, could not make for the kind of quick progress this wall went up without Nehemiah's administration and organization of it. You know, sometimes in the church, administration gets a little poo-pooed as though it weren't an important gift. And I don't say this because I have some administrative gifts. I just see it generally. Um, it, it, it's almost like, well, the real ministry is when, you know, all the stuff that's happening in the moment, but the stuff that's going on behind the scenes, planning, helping, shepherding, thinking ahead, forward, oversight, all that kind of stuff, that's just kind of, eh, yeah, you can get along without it though. I mean, early church didn't have that. Yeah, they did. They had tons of administration in the early church. How do you think they've solved the Act 6 problem? Organization. They, got a, they, didn't, they didn't have to run through 16 different committees and figure out, well, what, what are we supposed to do about the widows? I don't know. How do they get fed? I don't know. You, you know. It's your job. No, but we see wise administration play out. One of my favorite books on ministry is The Trellis and the Vine. I love the metaphor. But I love the book, too. But the metaphor captures exactly what I'm trying to talk about here. Both the organizational aspect of the work of, God, of the kingdom of God and the organism aspect of the kingdom of God are both necessary. Some of church life is trellis work. It's just building the organization so that ministry can happen. The structures, the programs, the budgets, the roles, that kind of the teams. That's the organization. That's not the end-all, be-all, but that's the trellis so that the vine can grow effectively. What, do you have, what happens to a vine if it doesn't have a trellis attached to it? It grows, for sure. Not necessarily the way you want it to grow. I've heard some people say, oh, church, all church growth is healthy. Not necessarily. Tumors grow very quickly. So not all healthy things grow. Dead thing, deadly things grow. Cancer grows. Okay? So, well, living things grow. That's how we know a church is alive. Nah. Check your Bible first. Watch the fruit. See what's happening. So what we see here, though, is that the trellis that Nehemiah built in his administration and his planning served the quick execution of the spontaneous natural ministry that grew out of it. I love that vision. It's a both and. It's not an either or. The mercy people grab a hold of the administrators and they give them a real big hug. 
the, the people who are people, you know, right there, right there, the more tasking-oriented of us, grab the people, oh, we love you, we're trying to do this to help everything. And then the more uh, the people give a fist bump to the task people, it's all, it's all there, it's all here, it's all important. We don't need to diminish or demean uh, trellis work or vine work. Unplanned and spontaneous things in the church are wonderful, so are planned and unspontaneous rhythms in the church. Failure to give proper attention to the trellis or the vine will result in damage to both the trellis and the vine. Fourthly and finally, we've seen the church is built when everyone works personally, when everyone works cooperatively, when everyone works... What was my last point? When everyone works wisely. And fourthly, the church is built when everyone works sacrificially. When everyone works sacrificially. And with this, we wrap up. In a couple of instances... You see, and I want to show you these very quickly, you see that people are building multiple sections of the wall. They're stepping up, and they're just kind of going in overdrive. They're kind of getting after it. You guys have been around those beast mode workers, right? Like, stop it. Pastor Keith will tell you about those. He wants all of his guys. Got to be on beast mode. Get after it. Get after it. So, um, you know, Wiley doesn't want and on his job. You know, don't, don't just stand there. We got, you know, here's a shovel with your name on it. Pick it up. Um, so, you know, whatever we're doing, like we got to be all in, but notice that, that doesn't mean that there won't be some people just either killing it and just got more time on their hands or are just, just so enthusiastic about the work that they're covering their part of the wall. And then some notice, uh, verse four, you can point out a couple of guys who are in the hall of fame here for work ethic. And next to them, Merimoth, uh, uh, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz repaired. Now oh, that's good for you, buddy. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. He said, well, they just did the same thing. But no, hold on, hold on. Look at verse 21. After him, Merimoth, wait, we already read about him. Son of Uriah, yeah, same guy. Son of Hakal, yeah, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house. Whoa, getting after it twice. Look at you taking care of your section and moving on to another. He's not the only one either. We get Meshulam in verse 4 and verse 31, and men of Tekoa in verse 5 and verse 27, getting after multiple sections of the wall. Nehemiah employs workers from all walks of life, those who have been suited for heavy labor and those who have not. Think about it. Have you ever been tempted to avoid a necessary but unpleasant ministry task with the excuse of, that's eh, not really my gifting? Is such an excuse valid, according to Nehemiah 3? No. You got a priest on the door, working on the door. The high priest was first in line. He's not too spiritual to get his hands dirty. And then chapter 3, verses 9 and 12 talks about rulers coming down to help and even bringing their daughters with them. Those girls were obviously spending too much time on the Xbox. They need to be down on the wall. So why ultimately, though, is, is this wall getting built? And here's where I want to conclude. And here's the good news. As we're going to see throughout this book in the coming weeks, this wall project is doomed to fail. All reforms are. They just are. Nehemiah does his work in God's, does the work of God in his generation, and he is rewarded for it. But it's not a work that lasts. Romans are going to come and rip this wall apart in 70 AD. So was it all in vain then? I mean, why? why so? They had a lot of enthusiasm for the work of God in those days, didn't you, Nehemiah? It didn't last. 
Look at all those guys building. So if this church closes in 50 years, is all your labor in vain, all your tithe money in vain, all your... I pray it doesn't. I don't want it to do that. But no, no. That's in God's hands, right? Ours is the responsibility to sow into the kingdom of God in our generation and trust God with the fruit. But notice, here's why you have hope, no matter what happens. Because even though this rebuilt Jerusalem is going to go down in flames one day, Nehemiah is rebuilding this Jerusalem so there will be a Jerusalem for the Messiah to be born in. That's a far greater thing than a wall still being up. Isn't it? Isn't it a far greater thing that the people with which you are spending your life, your brothers and sisters here, are going to make it to heaven because of you than whether or not you get remembered or your work lasts? We are each other's work, brothers and sisters. We are the work. We are the work. And so God is protecting and preserving his people through Nehemiah so that Christ would come into the world. The rebuilding of the wall shows God still intends to bring the Messiah in. That's the hope of Nehemiah. The wall represents the fact that God is still working through His covenant people to accomplish His purposes. And God did keep His covenant. It came to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And now in Christ, you and I are graciously invited into that covenant and we are invited to get to work. Nehemiah's ambition was to see God advance his kingdom through his covenant people. That meant building a wall. Our holy ambition is to see God advance his kingdom through us as his covenant people. And that means a holy church, building a church, building up the people of God. We don't build walls or temples. Instead, we invite all people to know Christ and to help them grow up into Christ. That's our kingdom work. That's our holy ambition. In our words, in our lives, in our acts of service, we get on the wall and we stay there until we die doing that. Building up the church for the glory of God. May God enable us, brothers and sisters, to do that personally, cooperatively, wisely, and sacrificially. Let's pray together as the worship team comes. Father, how grateful we are to you this morning for the wisdom of the book of Nehemiah, for the way in which, even though his work didn't last, his name and what he did for you is recorded by you as an example of faithfulness, ordinary faithfulness for all of your people to be encouraged by for the rest of time. Lord, you know our names. You know what we do for you. You are paying attention to what is happening in our lives. You are paying attention even now as we sing to you, as we respond in worship, and as our worship team leads us. You are paying attention to the good work they are doing, to the good work that, all, that, that, that those of us are participating in by joining in the singing. Lord, thank you. Thank you for a church that is full of people on the wall. Would you encourage the hearts of your people this morning in light of the fact that you know them, you know their name, you're paying attention to what they're doing, and nothing that they are doing is insignificant to you, though it might look like insignificant to me, or might even look like it's insignificant to somebody else or even to ourselves. It's nothing, it's not anything. Lord, you said over and over again in this chapter, and he repaired, 
and she repaired, and she repaired. That's our whole life, God, in this fallen, broken world. We're just trying to repair. We're just trying to help mend each other. We're trying to heal each other. We're trying to point each other to Christ so that we can be progressively repaired. That's all our life is about. One big human construction project. Thank you for the ordinariness of that and the dignity that you bestow on that. Fill our hearts with fresh resolve, fresh vision, fresh hope, fresh love, and fresh desire to engage in this work in a more wholehearted way than perhaps we've, we've done it in a long time. Fill us with joy, knowing that you are with us, you know us, you're watching us, and you will energize us for this great task. We ask all this in the name of our greater Nehemiah, Jesus Christ.